I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast. Jenny Weiner knows the pandemic has exposed gender inequities that don't often get talked about in education. It doesn't matter whether women work in early childhood or higher education or somewhere in between. These inequities play out similarly across the field. Jenny is an associate professor who studies how to make education more inclusive and equitable through educational leadership. Although females have long made up the bulk of the education workforce, they barely represent a quarter of top leadership roles. She says there's many reasons for how we've ended up with gender inequity in the field and society. I asked Jenny to tell me more about the unique challenges facing women in education. There are a number of challenges facing women in leadership generally and then within the context of K-12 specifically. Some of these challenges sort of exist outside of the role, which are really about how our society frames the role of women and socialize us to understand what women should and shouldn't be doing within the space, right? So, mm-hmm. for example, the idea that we should be the primary caretakers for our young children which of course then creates complications if you don't have paid family leave or access to reliable, cheap, and effective care for your children and are attempting to work full-time, which was true in our context of our society prior to the pandemic, but of course has been exacerbated by Mm -hmm. the pandemic. We also have issues around like who becomes caretakers, even if you don't have children, for elderly parents or for other kind of tasks within the context of a family or an extended family. So you have all that kind of external socialization. And then you also have what I would say is role socialization in leadership specifically which is the way leadership is constructed in our society and in education specifically still really focuses on this idea of a lone hero or heroic person, and I would argue Mm -hmm. a white man, with characteristics that are stereotyped as masculine characteristics. Mm -hmm. So being very strong or ambitious or innovative or aggressive, right? And we see this through our political cycles and, and other spaces. So what happens is when women may not be considered the best candidates for these positions because they hold other kinds of stereotyped ideas, right? So if you are more communally oriented, which would be a stereotype female, you're softer, you're emotional, you may not be seen as having leadership potential, right? Mm. And there's a lack of female mentors and women who are in charge in the first place to kind of tap people along the trajectory. But also if you exhibit traditionally or stereotypically male kind of characteristics that are more aligned with leadership, let's say being quite aggressive or being innovative, we know that women often get criticized for exhibiting those behaviors. Um, So I talk a lot about this idea of a double bind. So you have these kinds of externalized pathway issues and things that keep women from having full access to leadership that exist because of, again, our societal structures and who gets to do what roles and why and how we think about that. But then we also have these kinds of internalized structures about how we understand and perceive what leadership is and hence who should be able to do it and be successful and thrive in the role. So it's it's a lot, <laughs> to say the least. It is a lot. I mean, I think it's something that you can easily look at and see in K through 12. Right. You look and you see a lot of females, predominantly females in education, but you don't often see them in roles of superintendency or principalship. So right now, about 83 to 86% range of teachers are women. About 54% of principals are women. 
predominantly in elementary schools, and that's not an accident because elementary schools don't mm -hmm. have after-school activities to the same extent. Mm -hmm. um, there's also ideas about women and their ability to facilitate, let's say, discipline for older boys and what they can handle. Also, women's willingness to kind of blend their life and home life with their work life. So if I am a mother, am I willing to bring my kids to a bunch of basketball games or activities at school consistently? If I'm a man, am I willing to do that? Um, and then at the superintendent level, it's been around 23% since the last 15 or 20 years. So, wow. I mean, if you inverse that, it's even more bananas, right? So you have like, what is that then? 16% or so of teachers are men. About 50% of them are principals and about 74% are superintendents. So, mm. I mean, it's jarring in either direction, but I sometimes ask people to think in the reverse, right? Like you have this teeny tiny pool at the bottom of the pyramid for men who are situated in schools and they're overwhelmingly, I mean, more than 75% of the superintendents of people in charge. Right. And is it the same when you get into higher ed and you start looking at careers yes. in academia, it's sort of the same reflection? Right. And I think what's important to remember, too, is historically it was built this way on purpose. Mm -hmm. Michael Apple, a scholar who studies the history of the profession, talks a lot about the ways in which we had to fill these common schools with an available workforce, people who could read and didn't have a lot of other options, and that was primarily women. So mm -hmm. we've had a highly feminized profession. But feminized means both that women do the work, but also that it's devalued because it is women's work. Mm. So that helps to explain why we have, for example, still issues around teachers being substantively underpaid, why buildings are in disrepair, and why we say we value education, but we consistently underfund it and do not treat teachers with the respect I think that they deserve. And I think it's partially because it's mostly women who do that work over time. Mm. But it's also why we've created sort of elaborate evaluation techniques to watch these women who need to be controlled and evaluated and observed to ensure they're doing the right thing within the context of schools. But teaching itself has been really situated as primarily a profession of women and also then around caretaking as a primary driver as opposed to, let's say, high skills, knowledge capabilities. Mm. And academia is the same way. So it was created primarily for men and therefore not surprising that it's very hard to break in or deconstruct those ways of thinking about the work. How has the pandemic really shifted this? Because this has been a long existing problem, but now we're hearing about it on so many levels uh -huh. and it's getting a lot of attention. Yeah. You know, we're looking at somewhere between 2.5 and 4 million women leaving the workforce between the beginning of the pandemic and February of this year. Mm -hmm. So just that number is just breathtaking. Now, why? And it's intricately related to the things that we're discussing, right? So if you have professions and you have, let's say, a heterosexual couple, one is a man and one is a woman, and they both were working prior to the pandemic. It is highly likely because of the way discrimination works that the woman was in a lower paid field, or if she was in the same field, she was in a position in which she made less money than mm -hmm. her husband. In addition, many of the caretaking responsibilities within the context of the home that are considered to be stereotyped female work, child care, cleaning, scheduling, cooking, are usually taken up by women. So mm -hmm. then the schools close, there's no caretaking, you have young children, somebody has to give up their work in order to make that happen. If this is the parameters under which we make decisions, who's more likely to leave? Clearly, the spouse who makes less money 
is more comfortable or has been socialized to take on those roles within the context of the house mm -hmm. before. And we see that, right? In fact, we actually saw quite a few women who made more money or had their own professions and jobs, even those women leaving in favor of staying home. And then we also, of course, to talk about this without talking about race is, you know, not really appropriate because most of the women who lost their jobs are women of color who were also in service industries, primarily in work that was most risk for catching COVID, like whether that be home health care, the service industries, restaurants, cleaning services. And now they're also home and are unable to work or have to put themselves at risk to facilitate their child and their family having enough money to survive. So it exposed, I think, things that were already there, but that we mm -hmm. just never talked about in the public space. There were mothers I know who were working in education, were working as early childhood educators and decided to leave their jobs to be able to accommodate, you know, remote learning or being home with their kids through this time. So definitely hearing that in my own world. Yeah, I think what you're saying is really powerful too, which I think people don't talk about, which is like if you have a profession, both early childcare providers and let's say any kind of childcare provider and educators who are not childcare providers but children go to school, is predominantly female. We mm -hmm. can imagine that many of them probably have young children themselves. And yet the rhetoric has really been to not discuss that as if these are separate, you know, identities. So we say, why aren't the teachers or the child care providers doing their job? They should be open without paying any attention to if I'm a teacher and I'm supposed to be attending to my class full time and I have a three-year-old, who's taking care of my three-year-old? Mm -hmm. And I just feel like in the public discourse around school opening or not opening, the idea or understanding that many of these are young women with families who are facing the same challenges that I'm facing is not discussed. And I would just put that to people about how that kind of reinforces our lack of discussion about women's rights and gender equity within the context of our society when we do not attend to that as part of the problem of schools reopening. Mm. Well, since you've mentioned the what you've just written about, which is your own experience and a collection of essays being released looking at pandemic parenting, you talk about that experience of juggling the challenges of parenting while working in academia. So what has it been like for you? Dislocating, <laughs> discombobulating. I mean, so I have twin nine-year-old boys, both of whom have been home with me for over a year now. Now they've had full-time learning, but not in person. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's been so terribly difficult is so much of the kind of gymnastics that I've had to do over the course of my career to simply persist and thrive in a space that's not made for me. Mm -hmm. So to constantly be in spaces and having to make really tough choices about, should I go to a conference? And then when I get to the conference, people say, well, who is taking care of your kids or I'm missing something that's happening at home and I'm feeling that's really difficult and hard. And I've made so many, what I perceive to mm -hmm. be sacrifices in a system that is not made for working mothers or for people from non-traditional kind of backgrounds in that space. And then to like be home all the time and feel like some of that is slipping away. My identity and my ability to thrive in my workspace just gone. And even though I think externally, there's a sense that everybody's going through it and mm -hmm. I should just not be so hard on myself. I don't believe that the system will actually excuse women who have taken this time. Mm. I think that I have a lot of fear that if I don't keep juggling and pretzeling 
that's not something I'm ever going to be able to make up. Because again, I've had to fight so hard just to feel like I had a space at the table. It's difficult to lose something that you feel like you've fought so hard for. Yeah. You raised an interesting point because there have been some predictions made about how far this pandemic will definitely set women off course. And it's alarming. We're talking not just like, oh, this is going to set women off by a couple years. This is like decades of setbacks from just this one year, year and a half, whatever it ends up being. Yeah, they said like 1970s or something. Yeah. Which is crazy. It is really crazy. I mean, I think it tells you how precarious everything was and, and on whom's back the progress had it been made. Mm-hmm. So because there haven't been attention to, let's say, structural and systemic changes to our policies, to issues of place, like the ERA, for example, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment never passed. The fact that like many, you know, black and brown women are in low wage jobs and we can't pass a decent minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Uh, the fact that we don't have universal child care or universal pre-K. So what happens? Well, women behind the scenes address all those issues behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And so every success to a large degree has been on the backs of the people who have been discriminated against. We've elbowed and we've worked and we've suffered and we've done what we needed to do. But individual hard work is not a way to fix systems of oppression. I mean, it helps, but you can see, right? Like once that fell down and we didn't have any systems to support us, you know, the marbles all sort of fell out of the bag. I only hope perhaps that people will remember and understand like the veil is off that like, you know, depending on women to just do more is not a way to create a just society. Mm -hmm. And we have to fight for these kinds of systemic changes that are going to make things different, regardless of what the future holds in terms of calamity or change or whatever the fact may be. I mean, we've heard a lot about the glass ceiling, especially even recently with Kamala Harris being elected. And a lot of us have heard of that term before. What is the glass cliff? So the glass cliff was brought about by some research by Haslam and Ryan, and they're Mm -hmm. British researchers. And they read in the newspaper, there was an article about like how the FTSE index, their publicly traded companies, how women were in charge of all the ones that were doing poorly. And therefore, women must be poor leaders. Um, They did analysis. And basically what they found was that women were more likely to be leaders within the context of companies that were not doing well, but they were hired once they started to decline. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that women and people of color, people who are traditionally marginalized from those kinds of leadership opportunities, are given the opportunity to lead, but only when an organization is in decline. Mm. And now, of course, that comes with a bunch of other parameters, right? So usually that also means often that you have a highly activist board. So women who end up taking these positions spend far more time catering and having to deal with activist board members than do men. Additionally, when women start to improve the organization, they're not given credit for that. Mm-hmm. Alternatively, if something that looks like it's doomed to fail and then they take over fails, they're blamed and most often a white man is put back into the position after them. I'm actually studying this within the context of education superintendents, but I noticed, for example, like I work in Connecticut, there are very few black women principals in a place like Hartford, but when you look at where they're placed, they tend to be placed in most of the turnaround schools, which are the chronically underperforming schools. Hmm. April Peters speaks about how they're kind of positioned as cleanup women 
to come in and, and mop up and clean up the mistakes others have made. But instead of being lauded for that, even when they have success, they're vilified as being difficult or hard to work with or aggressive in ways that you know are not valued, even when they have success in addressing the problems of the organization. So it's pretty tricky. What is the most important thing for a female in education leadership whether it's K through 12, whether it's in academia. I'm often in places with women leaders. I'm often asked to speak and I facilitate a women's superintendents group for the state of Connecticut. I'm so proud to and privileged to have that opportunity. I think one thing that often happens is people are upset mm-hmm. by hearing these truths. At the same time, because we'd all rather believe, or many people would rather believe that hard work and being really good at what you do could Mm -hmm. outperform bias. And that's a lie. Um, No matter how good you are, if we live in a discriminatory system, that discrimination will raise its head. Now, of course, there's exceptions. There's always exceptions. But on average across, right, most women Mm -hmm. are not exceptions. So what's the benefit of doing it then? Well, the other piece of this is if you don't have language and understand that there is something systemic happening, then when someone says to you, you don't really have leadership capabilities or you're not really leadership material, Mm -hmm. you might believe them. You may actually begin to feel that the problem is you because you look around and you're not seeing that happening to other people or nobody's talking about it. And you internalize those feelings of shame and ineffectiveness and you lay the blame on yourself. And that is terrible. And it's not going to get us to come together. It's not going to help facilitate change. It's not going to move us to press and push and fight for something better on the horizon for us and other generation of women leaders. And so I think it's a misnomer to say that liberation comes Mm. without pain because facing hard truths is painful. It is painful to see that I can't outrun discrimination, but I cannot be free. I cannot be liberated if Mm -hmm. I don't see how the system operates because individuals cannot by themselves change discriminatory systems. We need each other. And the only way we can find each other is if we own up and talk about these experiences and connect them to something larger than ourselves. But it doesn't feel like the conversation about gender uh, bias happens as often, which is interesting in lieu of all of the information that we have about females in education. I am concerned about the ways in which gender identity and other forms of identity have not been taken up as part of the larger Mm -hmm. conversation about DEI efforts. And I wonder how we can have an anti-racist society without addressing patriarchy and vice versa, because patriarchy and white supremacy are intricately linked and both need to be addressed simultaneously for justice to come forward. I do not place one above the other, but I do think we can do hard things and we should and need to talk about them as intricately linked. And when we don't, we miss quite a bit of the conversation. To just backtrack on that, is that intersectional feminism? Part of the critique of the feminist movement was that it was predominantly, you know, women like me. 
upper-middle-class white women who did not attend to the fact that they had particular privileges regarding Mm -hmm. that status, right? Like, I'm not a low-wage earner. You know, I have documentation. I have particular freedoms and abilities to assert myself in spaces without the same repercussions. And that needs to be owned and understood. So intersectionality is really, really linked with Black feminist thought, critical thought, and legal work as well. But the idea is that we have to attend to multiple forms of identity at once and how that discrimination manifests across the spectrum. So like a really concrete example, I think that's useful to think about within the context of education is, you know, we still have very low numbers, but only 6% of principals Mm. are Black women, which is just crazy. And, And much of this is actually a result of what happened in the post-Brown era when schools integrated and they fired in mass something like 40,000 Black educators. Because when they integrated schools, they shut down Black schools and fired Black teachers and administrators and replaced them with white administrators and teachers. So, which many people don't talk about, but is important to our legacy and why we are where we are. So if I was somebody who was interested in trying to recruit more people of color and women into, let's say, administrative ranks, the reasons why they are not accessing those historically Mm. are different. So if I try to just do it through a white lens, right, so I'm addressing gender, but if I only do it through a white lens, I may not be attending to the ways in which racial discrimination and this legacy is impacting Black women's ability to access, feel successful, and how they're Mm. treated in the role, right? So the solutions may look different, and the ways in which I engage and think about them may look different because I understand that both of those things matter, as do potentially other things that are the ways in which discrimination operates to allow them to have access and thrive in those positions. So I think the lack of attention to that is really, really problematic. And again, those are just a few, right? We could talk about LBGTQ. You know, we know that immigration status, other things that bring about different ways of interacting with systemic oppression. And then again, how we might attend to that and think about it if we really want things to change. So it feels so huge that it can almost feel like it's difficult to know how to take a step Mm. toward change. And so even in lieu of the pandemic, which is kind of almost like this dark cloud lingering over it. So what about next steps? So on one hand, you could say, I feel really overwhelmed because of all the things that you just said. On the other hand, you could say, wow, there's Mm -hmm. so much work to do. And there's so many different, based on my skills, capabilities, orientation, understandings, I could get involved at so many Mm -hmm. levels, right? I could get involved in my intimate relationship with my partner and discuss about the balance of work and why things are and start begin to question that. And that would be, I think, Mm -hmm. a feminist action. There are ways to be engaged in sisterhood to support women in your place of work. For example, here's just a small one. You go to a meeting frequently and your female colleague said something. And then five minutes later, your male colleague says it and everyone says, Bill, that's a great idea. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, I think a lot of women, if they're listening to this, may have had that experience. So you may be with women in your group and speak to them and say, whenever someone says something, we're going to amplify it. So now this time, Jill says something wonderful, and then Bill says it, and Bill repeats it. And I said, yes, I loved it when Jill said it five minutes ago. (laughs) I mean, these are small, but I think if we first name things as problematic and situated outside of ourselves, and two, come together around them, right, we can run for office. Run for office. If you're listening, run for office. Run for your school board. Put that in your pocket. Understand that, you know, issues around fair pay Mm -hmm. are feminist issues. Issues around childcare are feminist issues. Access to healthcare mm-hmm. is a feminist issue. 
read, study, affiliate, fight. I'm working really hard to try to imagine a future that doesn't look just like trying to get more women look like men in the sense of like, I don't want our future to have to be that women have to take on the attributes of men to feel successful and gain access. I want us to begin to think about a future that's not imagined or created yet. But to do that, we have to talk to each other like we are now and tell the truth about how we feel and about what's hard about it and that these things are happening to all of us and that we're in solidarity. And I think that's where um, change starts to happen. Well, thank you so much, Jenny. Thank you. It was so fun. Jenny Wiener is an Associate Professor of Educational Leadership at the University of Connecticut. She authored an essay in the forthcoming book, Pandemic Parenting, The Collision of School, Work, and Life at Home. She will also teach in the upcoming Women in Education Leadership Program as part of the Harvard Graduate School of Education Professional Education. I'm Jill Anderson. This is the Harvard EdCast, produced by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Thanks for listening.